Father in heaven, we praise you this morning, for you are indeed worthy of praise. Father, we pray that you would fill us, your people, with all knowledge of your will. We pray that you would do this so that that we wouldn't be tempted by things that appear to be powerful or stable or valuable or life-giving, but that we would see what truly is those things. Father, we pray that as you fill us with knowledge that would lead us to walk in a way that is worthy of you, that we would bear good fruit, that we would love and serve those around us, that we would be patient, that we would be quick to forgive, that we would be quick to declare your praises and to see things as you would. Father, we thank you for making us fit for the inheritance that you are giving to us. We thank you from, for delivering us from the authority of darkness, that you've saved us from our sin and the death that it deserves, from our entrapment and slavery. Lord, we thank you for making those powers not for exposing them to the shame that they are. We, we praise you for transferring us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light that belongs to your Son because we know at the end of the day that is the only kingdom that has any staying power, any value, or any worth. And so teach us to be thankful for these things we pray and we pray it in the name of Jesus our King. Amen. Y'all can have a seat. Some actions are particularly memorable, right? These actions find a way to kind of etch themselves into our memory, and they just kind of stick with you. I'm thinking of things uh, like Muhammad Ali, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Even if you weren't alive then, you know it. I'm thinking of things like Babe Ruth pointing to the far fence before he cranks a homer over it, or maybe even Dikembe Mutombo's finger wag. These taunts, these making fun of things, tend to grab attention. Like if you weren't paying attention before, when someone begins to taunt someone or something else, you begin to pay attention. It grabs a hold of you, it draws you in, it makes you focus. These these taunts are a way of those who at least see themselves as in power or as mighty showing to the other that they are weaker than they think, that they're out of their element, that they're in water too deep. And this has a way, as I mentioned, of drawing all listeners and watchers into the action that's about to happen. Well, you may find yourself week after week, Sunday after Sunday, coming and gathering right here. And it may feel like there's not a lot of real significant things that happen when God's people gather together, right? I'm thinking of something the Apostle Paul said. He said, he told the Corinthians, not many of you were wise, not many of you were of noble birth, you weren't rich or powerful, 
but those are the people that God has gathered together. He's, using, he's used the foolish to shame the wise and the weak to shame the powerful. All right? Compared to the things that are happening around us, Sunday mornings here aren't that flashy. They're not that showy. You think of, of the type of show that a large corporation can put on, where they bring out all the bells and whistles. You think of the things that happen around the Super Bowl, or maybe at some fancy gala that famous people go to. You think of those with great political power and, and clout and the marvelous big shows that they're able to put on with lights and streamers and planes flying over and all of these things. And you show up here on a Sunday morning and we sing some songs, we read an old book. It can feel a little insignificant. Now, that would be true, maybe, if we didn't have glasses to see better. So I want to show you something to sort of set the stage for where we're going. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and flip over to Colossians chapter 2. Uh, we'll be in Ephesians for the rest of this morning, but I want to show you this in Colossians 2 to, to help get us fitted for this. And so Paul is writing to the church in Colossae. I'm going to just look at verse 15. And Paul says something really shocking. Colossians 2.15, Paul says that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. Now, here's what's strange about this. Paul's writing not far removed from Jesus' crucifixion, and anyone who has ever seen a crucifixion or who saw maybe Jesus' crucifixion would know that Paul's off here, right? When Jesus was crucified, it wasn't the authorities, it wasn't the powers who were stripped and shamed. But the way crucifixion worked is it would be Jesus who was disarmed. It was Jesus who was stripped. It was Jesus who was put up to open shame, held before everybody, and not triumphing. Well, at least that would be true if Sunday morning didn't happen, right? And when resurrection happens, everything takes on a new light. Things are flipped upside down. And these glasses, if you will, that Paul hands to us have a way of flipping the world upside down because often the way that things appear in the world aren't actually how they are. And so in the light of resurrection, in the light of Jesus' victory, over death, we see that what happened on Friday was actually the reverse of what appeared. And so it wasn't Jesus who was triumphed over. It wasn't Jesus who was stripped and disarmed and shamed. In fact, that moment was Jesus' exaltation onto the throne of his forever kingdom. It was the powers, the principalities, the rulers, the authorities who in their disarming and stripping of the Creator actually opened themselves up to shame. It was in their crucifying the Lord of life that their foolishness was clearly seen by all. And so Paul tells us that be careful what you see. Things aren't always what they appear. And in Jesus' crucifixion, 
what appeared to be loss and defeat was actually victory. In this light, I want to show you something this morning. It's something we don't think a lot about. It's a different way of thinking than us moderners are used to. As we gather here, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, there's something really amazing that happens. When we gather together to sing the praises of the Almighty, to open this ancient book, we are in fact taunting, mocking, making fun of the principalities and powers that think they be. So uh, what I want to do is flip a few pages back in your Bible. We're going to go to Ephesians for the rest of this morning. And there's a theme that runs its way all the way through the book of Ephesians. It shows up multiple times. We'll look at a few of them this morning. We won't look at all of them. But I want to highlight a couple of these places for you because I mentioned a minute ago, this is a theme that we tend to sort of just gloss over because it sounds a little bit strange to our modern ears. But I want to draw it out for you. I want to show it to you this morning and then think about what this means for us in our gathering. So go over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, I'm going to pick up in verse 1. And here's, here's what Paul tells the Christians in Ephesus. He says, and you... You were dead. Dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world. Living like everybody else. Following the prince of the power of the air. There's a strange phrase. And the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So Paul says, here's something that was true of you. You were dead, dead in your trespasses. You were enslaved to this prince of the power of the air. You were trapped just like the rest of the world. And you were, because of that, children of wrath like all of the rest of the world. That's true of who you were, Paul says, but it's not true of who you are. Now, before we move forward with that, I think we need to slow down on that prince of the power of the air. That's a strange phrase. Paul will use different language for this throughout the book of Ephesians that kind of centers around this idea of powers and principalities. Now, as much as you and I like to say that we're not influenced by the world around us, to a much deeper degree than I think we realize we actually are. So, for example, one of the ways that the culture around us tends to view the world is they have a really flat, thin view of the world. And so what I mean by that is, is this. Most people in our world tend to think that all there is is the material. Right? If you can study it under a microscope, it exists. 
If you can't see it in a microscope or a telescope, then it doesn't actually exist. The material is all that there is. Now, Christians obviously aren't this, at least not technically, but I think often we are practically simply materialists, right? And so what I mean by that is we tend to view things in a really flat, thin manner also. We see the material and that's all that we address. All this talk of spiritual forces and other elements and and things in creation are a bit strange to us. And we tend to uh, just kind of shove those to the side. And so we read through Ephesians, we see this language pop up over and over and over, and we just kind of put it to the side of the table, assuming that if you remove all the clubs from a deck of cards, the game will still work just fine. And, And We know that's not the way that it it works. Reality is, in fact, Paul would tell us, thicker than we tend to imagine. One of the reasons Revelation that we just went through is such a difficult book is because we're not used to thinking this way. All right, so if you were to ask John, John, why is it that Rome is so bad? Why is Babylon so evil? What's the problem with humans, with me and with you and with all these kingdoms and empires? John would say, one of the reasons at least is this thing that he calls a beast, this power that kind of animates and inspires and encourages God's creatures to move in a way that is the opposite of of what he created. And so uh, in kind of a a sad, ironic twist of of Genesis 1, John points us to the the beast, right? So in Genesis 1, God creates humans to be his image bearers and to rule over the beasts of the earth and the fish of the sea and the birds of the heaven. And in our twistedness, we in fact begin to image these beasts and rule over one another, right? You see this because we are inspired, invigorated, animated by these powers and principalities. We are, as Paul would say, dead in them, enslaved to them, stuck without hope in the world. Now, we saw in Colossians 2 that that's not where things stay, right? Jesus doesn't abandon his people. He doesn't turn his shoulder the other way. Jesus comes, Jesus dies on a cross, and in Jesus' apparent loss, Jesus actually has victory, and he mollywops the principalities and powers. He grabs them and uses them as a mop to clean the floor with. And, And here's what's fun. That's true, What's fun is Jesus doesn't just defeat these enemies soundly. He then boasts about it. He declares it. He taunts it. And as he calls you and me to reign and rule with him, one of the things that he does is he welcomes us into the arena to taunt and mock the principalities and power. So uh, turn one page over to Ephesians 3. So we're going to look at verse 10. In Ephesians 3, Paul is talking about this gospel that he's been made a minister of. He's speaking about how he's unfit to do it, except for 
Jesus. And in verse 10, he says that God has made him the minister of this so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So, a couple things here. Paul speaks of the manifold wisdom of God. Now, this has two things baked into it that Paul has already highlighted in Ephesians. One, in the wisdom of God, Jesus has dealt with sin. Sin is wiped out, done away with. You and I get to go free because of Jesus' death on the cross. But in dealing with sin, Jesus has also dealt with the effects of sin. And the other theme that's running through here in Ephesians is Paul tells us that in Jesus' death on the cross, he's not only dealt with sin, but he's also torn down the dividing wall of hostility. He's brought Jew and Gentile together at last to belong together as God's people. And so what is this wisdom of God? Well, the wisdom of God is that sin is dealt with and that Jesus' people are united together. Now, that's a wonderful thing. But notice what happens with this manifold wisdom of God. It's made known, Paul says, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is, they are reminded of their defeat. They're taunted. And notice how it is that Paul says they are reminded of this. Very first of the verse, Paul says, through you and me, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is made known to these rulers and principalities. So what does the church do when it's gathered together? Well, there's lots of things we might say. But one of the ways that Paul answers that question right here is the church functions as a witness to the principalities and powers that Jesus has, in fact, won, that God is, in fact, wise, that the Jew and Gentile are now united, and that God's purposes are not and never can be thwarted. This church, whether you realize it or not, is what you are doing right now. And it's from this angle that some of the things that Martin Luther said begin to make maybe a little bit more sense. You know, he had this habit of taunting Satan. So you may have heard this quote before. Luther says, So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. Throw it right back in his face. You have the privilege, the freedom to taunt the principalities and powers because you belong to the one who has been victorious over them. That's one of the things that we do when we gather as a church is we declare this to the principalities and to the powers. Turn over just 
one more page to Ephesians 6. Verse 12. So Paul is continuing on. So you've now been rescued by Jesus. He's gathered you together to taunt these principalities and powers. And now Paul warns them, these principalities and powers, though they're defeated, are still dangerous, right? Like a snake can be dead and you can still get venom in your arm, right? You are careful around not just a living snake, but a freshly killed snake as well. And so Paul warns the Ephesians as he gets into the armor of God. Look at verse 12. Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Your enemy is not another human, however much we may be tempted to think this. Paul says, You wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So notice again, Paul is saying part of what underlies the deep brokenness that we see all around us, what leads us and kingdoms and nations to be as evil as they are, is there are these forces, these spiritual cosmic powers, inspiring, animating, encouraging this depth of brokenness. And because of that, Paul says, your enemy isn't flesh and blood. Your enemy is these things. Paul would say reality is indeed thick. Simply what you see isn't all that there is. And so, church, here we are. Week after week, Sunday after Sunday, morning after morning. I want you to know that as you gather together, your gathering serves as a slap in the face to Satan and his minions. You are continually reminding him that his actions have no staying power. That he is, in fact, defeated and shown the door. Let me get specific. We come here and we worship Jesus. And you know one of the things that's communicated when we worship Jesus? An open mock of death. Because what's true about death? It couldn't hold Jesus and it won't hold Jesus' people. And so as you and I gather together and we declare praise and worship the one who conquered death, we are declaring to death that you are weak, that you're not permanent, that what you do won't last, and this means you and I don't have to fear death. Think about this. When you come together, and we remind ourselves of who Jesus is, as we confess our sin to Jesus and to one another when we gather together, We are openly mocking pride. Because pride can't exist in a place where we recognize how deeply broken and sinful we are. And as we remind ourselves how broken we are, how much in need of Jesus we are, we are mocking and putting it into pride. 
as you gather together and you forgive one another because God has in Christ forgiven you, you are mocking, you're taunting revenge and you're emptying sin of its power to divide and enslave. You see this? How is it that Jew and Gentile are brought together? Well, both are forgiven by God in Jesus, and so now both forgive one another, and as you do this, you make a mockery of revenge and division and hostilities. Each Sunday, as you leave your house, as you wake up, get out of your cozy, warm bed, and you come here, you are declaring that individualism just simply won't do. Our world says you are an autonomous individual person. Don't let anybody tell you who you are. Your identity is found in you and not in anyone else. Well, over and against that, we say, no, our identity is found in Jesus and his people. And as we get up Sunday after Sunday, as we gather together, we mock the idea that you can exist as an autonomous individual person. You were made to belong together. You struggle with anxiety? You know a good way to make a mockery of anxiety? Remind yourself of the trustworthiness of God. Not only is he able to care for his own, he loves to care for his own. And as we gather and praise him, we tell anxiety, you are weak. It may be difficult, but you are indeed weak. As you share your possessions, you make a mockery of greed. Because how can greed exist when you share your things with other people? When you freely give your money away? When you give your time away, you make a mockery of greed. As we gather and as we pray, you mock self-sufficiency. Because what is prayer declaring aside from, I can't do this on my own? God, we need you to show up. If you don't show up, we have nothing. Those who pray can't be those who worship self-sufficiency. We could go on, but I want you to see this. This mockery isn't simply for the sake of mockery, right? That, that's classless taunting. We're classy taunters, right? This mockery serves a purpose. It produces something. I want to show you two things that it produces. As we mock these pretend gods, as we mock these idols, as we mock these things that appear attractive and alluring, we are actively serving as a warning and an invitation for those who are currently enslaved to them. Right? We are inviting them to follow the same path that Paul followed, the same path that the church in Ephesus followed, the same path that we followed away from these false, fake, lame gods to the true God. You know, I think... One of the most effective tools of evangelism is Jesus' people at worship. 
We talk a lot about how is it that you can be a good evangelist. And people often think by that, how do I go out into a place I don't know, walk up to a stranger I don't know, and tell him or her about Jesus? That's good. But one thing that I think we far too often skim right over is the most visible, most beautiful, I think, form of evangelism is God's people being enamored by and worshiping the God who rules and who reigns, and in their worship, they are wooing and offering a way forward to other people who are trapped and enslaved and dead in the sins that we once were. And so one of the things that our taunting, our making fun of, our mocking these principalities and powers does is it invites others in. But the second thing that it does is it inoculates, can we use that language? You against the lure of these temptations. Because here's the deal. If you are mocking greed by sharing your things, you know what you no longer find beautiful? Greed. If you're mocking pride by confessing your sin, you know what's no longer attractive? Pride. You see it for the emptiness that it is. It's really hard to find beautiful and attractive that which you mock. Right? That's one of the reasons we read Isaiah earlier. And Isaiah talks about this log. Right? And he says, oh, you guys who are so wise. You're able to tell whether it's the left half of the log or the right half of the log that's fit for fire and which is fit for your idol. Real smart guys you are. And when you mock idols in this way, Next time you see an idol sitting in a statue with sacrifices offered up to it, you're reminded of the tree laying in the forest and that real wise guy who figured out which side was good for cooking his meat and which side was good for worshiping. As we gather, as we mock greed and pride and anxiety and self-sufficiency, you and I will find these things much, much less tempting. And so church... When you gather together, like you're doing right now, you are actively declaring and in that way participating in Jesus' victory over the principalities and powers. Jesus defeated them. Your job? Tell it. Make them know it. Remind yourself of this glorious victory. And the question that I think just leaps off the page at that point is if that's one of the things that's happening when you and I gather together, why would you not want to participate? At the end of the day, Jesus' people gathered together on Sunday morning, what we often call church, it's not something that you need to have your arm twisted to do. Right? That, that's missing the point. I want you to have eyes to see what's happening when Jesus' people gather together. We're not mere materialists. We don't see reality thinly as if all that's happening here is a small gathering of people showing up, singing songs, reading an old book, speaking some words. No, the reality is thicker than it appears. 
And when you gather and when we do these things, we declare something true. We make a mockery and a disgrace of the things that work to undo God's good creation. And so I ask you, in light of that, can you wake up on a Sunday morning and think, you know what I don't want to do? I don't want to go to church. Because to think that way is to indeed miss the whole point. Let me pray for us. And we'll declare this again as we rise up and sing in joy. Jesus, you, the victorious King, the mighty warrior, the ruler of all that is, you are to be praised. You are to be worshipped. You are to be adored. And in light of you, everything else feels so small. So I pray that you would give your people eyes to see. Let us see deeper than just what appears to our eyes. Remind us of the truth that you have won, that you've wiped the floor with these not-gods, these principalities and powers, these things that feel attractive and alluring and valuable are in fact empty. And as you remind us of these things, Lord, may you fill us with joy. Joy because you've not left us in our death or in our slavery, but you've come, you've rescued us, you've given us new life and a new hope and a new purpose. And so make that true in us, we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.